0: Good morning, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis and I am part of the Women in the Word teaching team. And I'm so glad to be here with you this morning. It's March. Can you believe it? I um, got up this morning and immediately wrote February on something and thought, oh my goodness, it is March and it is almost spring. And I think it's actually going to feel like summer today more than spring Uh, It's been a great winter. It's been a great winter without all the ice and snow. I've appreciated it a lot. Before we start this morning, I wore my, which you may not be able to see them, my Africa print toms this morning. Someone gave them to me as a gift. And I wore them so I would remember to share with you something that's important. We are sending another teaching team back uh, from Christ Chapel Women's Ministry to Africa in May. We're going to be sending a team of teachers to Bagamoyo, Tanzania. It's an old slave trading town on the uh, eastern Uh, Coast of Africa. They will be doing a week-long women's conference and giving the women of Africa a Bible so that they can do what we're doing this morning, which is sit down and study the Word of God together. You have partnered with our women's ministry in the past. When we have sent teams to Africa, we sent a team in November to Ethiopia and did a very successful women's conference in Ethiopia and provided those women with Bibles. So we're going to be going again in May. It's an opportunity for you to really pray and see if God wants you to participate with that by providing a scholarship for one African woman to attend the conference for a week. And $95 will provide her with a Bible all the materials and her food and lodging for the week so that she can study the Word of God and then go back to her church in um, East Africa and share the Word of God with others. So if you want to participate with that, you can let me know. Maybe your small group wants to participate in some way, but we would love to have not only your prayers but your financial support for the women of Africa. I'm excited to be in Mark 8 this morning. So turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8 and let's get started. It was May 10th, 1748, when the captain of a small ship filled with slaves left the west coast of Africa, probably Sierra Leone, and encountered a deadly storm. Now the ship captain had never actually been a religious man. He was taught... About Jesus as a very small child from his mother. But, um, he had never embraced that, never considered the existence of God after that. And he had actually led a pretty difficult life up to this point. He had actually gone to sea at the age of 11. And even though he was just a boy, he was disciplined severely for deserting the Navy because of the terrible conditions. And he ended up becoming an indentured servant to a slave trader. Uh, And he was brutally abused. Now, when he was finally rescued from the slave trader by a friend of his late father's, he went on to become a sea captain himself. Unfortunately, it was the captain of a slave ship. And on that day in May 1748, in the midst of this storm that he thought was going to uh, sink his ship and kill his crew and the slaves and himself for some reason... Even though he'd never had any belief in God, and he writes this in his journal, for some reason he called out these words, Lord, have mercy upon us. And you know what happened. God did have mercy upon them, and the seas were calm, and the wind was still, and the ship and its crew and all the slaves were saved. And for the rest of his life, the sea captain counted that... as the day and moment of his conversion. Because he believed that God had actually used that storm to open his eyes to the very existence of God, to his power and his great mercy that he had been blinded to all of his life up until then. And from that day forward, John Newton was no longer blind to the things of God or to the work of Jesus in his life. John Newton went on to write probably the best-known hymn in um, our Christian experience, Amazing Grace. We sang it last week. Jennifer sang it for us. Uh, Our worship team sang it last week. The um, The first verse of Amazing Grace actually captures Newton's experience that day when he writes the words, Was blind, but now I see. He finally had eyes to see the truth. Of who God really was. You know, if we studied the book of Mark together for the last seven weeks, we've seen how the disciples and the religious leaders and the people of Israel have really been blind to the truth of who Jesus is. They've asked the question over and over again who is this man? Is he just the common carpenter from Nazareth that we've known all of our life? But if he is, how in the world does he heal the sick and raise the dead? Is he the earthly king? ...that the nation of Israel has been waiting for. But if he is, why is he going around casting out demons... ...instead of marching into Jerusalem? The first seven chapters of Mark have been a repeating cycle... ...of Jesus revealing himself over and over again... ...to his disciples and to the people of the nation of Israel. His compassion and his great power... ...his teaching, his healing through his miracles. And he's done all that to seek to open their eyes to his true identity as he walks on the earth among them. And in Mark chapter 8, we're going to see Jesus repeat that cycle of revealing himself through eye-opening truth one more time in order that the disciples might finally see who he really is. So let's read verses 1 through 10 together. During those days, another large crowd gathered, and since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, Seven, they replied, and he told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks and broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and he told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present and having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanthoa. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? There's once again a large crowd that has come to hear Jesus teach. He's in the location here of the Decapolis. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. It's on the east side of the Jordan River, on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. There were about 4,000 men present, but that excludes the number of the women and children. So probably there could have been more like seven or 8,000 that actually were fed that day. They had been gathered for three days, and anybody that did have a supply of food, and maybe some of them did, uh, it was exhausted by now. Now, in chapter 6, when we saw him feed the 5,000, it was the disciples who brought up the question to Jesus of food for the huge crowd of people. Look on your verse sheet, Mark 6:35. It says, by this time it was late in the day, so the disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But right here in chapter 8, it is Jesus who calls the disciples' attention to the fact that the people are hungry. And we don't know if he purposely waited three days to see if the disciples would think back and remember what had happened before and perhaps come to him at some point in time and say, Hey, Lord, everybody's hungry. Let's give them something to eat. Um, but if that was the case, then Jesus was disappointed. Because after three days, they don't come to him and say, Something's going on here and we need to uh, feed them. Uh, it was Jesus that brought up the topic for discussion uh, about the people and their food. And in verse 4, when he brings up the topic, the disciples kind of look around and say, where can anyone get enough bread in the wilderness? Now, there are some interpretations of this passage that actually say, suggest, that this was a leading question. That they were wanting him to answer with, ta-da, I can do it, right here. (coughs) Excuse me. But even their hesitancy to simply ask him outright Uh, Instead of doing it with a possibly leading question shows Jesus their frank blindness to who he really is. And the patience that Jesus shows here, I think, is remarkable because he simply says to them when they ask their question, how many loves do we have? You know, I really want him to say, and somebody said this in the leaders' meeting, I really wanting to say, are you kidding, guys? Are you kidding? We did this before. You don't have to ask me that leading question. We all know how it works. Um, But the interesting truth about the disciples here is they don't ask him to intervene because they are blinded by their wrong expectations of who he is. They don't understand Jesus' true identity because he's not who they expect him to be. Oh, they have seen him do this before. Certainly, they stood right there and passed out the loaves and the fishes and then collected the abundance that was there. But here... They have their eyes closed to the fact that he can do it again. Do it again as many times as he wants to. Because it just doesn't match up to who they think he is. Their picture of Jesus up till now is that he came to be an earthly king. Just like King David. A political figure that's going to free the nation of Israel from Roman rule. They are not, and that's exactly what they're waiting for him to do. They really are not concerned about loaves and fishes. They're not waiting around thinking, oh, yay, maybe he's going to perform another miracle. They're waiting around thinking, is today the day he's going to march triumphantly into Jerusalem and take control of the nation of Israel? There is going to be a time when Jesus will do that but it's not now. And they are blind to the truth that he is God in the flesh with an agenda that is so much bigger than simply being the earthly king of Israel. They are blind to the truth that he came with compassion to die on the cross, not to establish the messianic kingdom yet. If you remember our study of Daniel, that's exactly what we talked about in Daniel. The time when Jesus does come to do that is at his second advent, not at his first. I have a three-year-old grandson who loves my iPad. Uh, In fact, he doesn't really just love it. He's obsessed with it. Um, So I have to hide it whenever he's going to come over. but I do have a Handy Manny puzzle app on my iPad. And he'll sit with me for hours and we'll do the Handy Manny puzzles on my iPad. He loves them. In fact, I kind of like them too. They're very mindless. You can sit and do Handy Manny puzzles for hours. Uh, on the screen, what it is, if you haven't done this with a three-year-old, is there's a very faint image of the puzzle on the screen. And the puzzle pieces are scattered all around it. And then you just drag and drop the puzzle piece, onto the puzzle until it forms the correct picture. You know, it would be impossible, or at least impossible for me to do without that faint image. My three-year-old grandson could probably do it, but I couldn't. And certainly it would be even more impossible to do if they gave us the wrong image that didn't match the puzzle pieces. Over and over again, Jesus has given the disciples and the people of the nation of Israel the puzzle pieces to his identity but they are not able to put it together to form the true picture of who he is because they are looking at the wrong image they are looking at the wrong image and because of that they don't ask him to intervene and do a miracle here What they want him to do is to go into Jerusalem. They're not wanting him to simply multiply the loaves and the fishes. You know, the same thing is really true for our lives, isn't it, ladies? If our picture of Jesus doesn't match up to who Jesus really is, if he's not Savior and Lord of Lords and King of Kings and Emmanuel, God with us, then we don't ask him to intervene in our lives either, do we? We don't have his power and his grace and his mercy because we don't expect that from him. Let's keep on reading. Let's read verses 11 through 13. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to you. And then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. You know, it's pretty easy to see from the text that the Pharisees really don't want Jesus to prove himself here. They really just want to argue with him. And in fact, the Greek word that's used here for to question actually means to dispute or to debate or to argue. Jesus has done more than enough miracles during his time on earth to affirm his identity to anyone that has an open mind and an open heart and really wants to know the truth. But what the Pharisees are asking for here as they ask for a sign is something similar to what God gave in the Old Testament. Like when he gave the rainbow as a sign to Noah that he would never flood the earth again. And they don't want it to authenticate that God has sent him. What they really want is something that they can use to prove that Jesus is a phony The Pharisees have actually already decided who Jesus is. We looked at that back in chapter three. Look on your verse sheet. This is their decision about who Jesus is. And the teachers of the law came down. Mark 3:22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, "He is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. He is driving out demons." Although the disciples suffer from blindness about who Jesus really is because of their wrong expectations about his mission in the world, the Pharisees suffer from blindness here for another reason. Their blindness comes from their stubborn unbelief. And Jesus knows it. He absolutely knows it. And his response in verse 13 is to flatly refuse their request. He is not going to give a sign to people whose goal is to hold tight at all cost to their unbelief. His response is also a pretty clear statement that his miracles should be enough for anyone that wanted their eyes open to the truth. You know, for us in this room today, stubborn unbelief, not just a lack of faith, but an intent Pursuit on proving the identity of Jesus to be a lie is probably not something that we struggle with today. But we have people in our lives who do, don't we? That their um, whole goal in life is to uh, prove to you that Jesus is a lie. And I think Jesus gives us a great, wise example here of how to handle that stubborn unbelief. And people around us. He refuses to debate with people whose hearts have already decided, who are so hard that they won't even look at the truth that is in their face. He doesn't waste words or any time with those who won't listen. Now, it's obvious that he's grieved about their decision because he sighs deeply. You have to know that it just breaks his heart that the Pharisees, the people that should be the leaders of the nation of Israel, are blinded by their stubborn unbelief. Um, But he knows that those who continuously reject God's gracious dealings with them really don't deserve a debate. And that is his wisdom and his wise example for us here. Matthew 7, 6, which isn't on your verse sheet, but let me read it to you, says, Do not give dogs what is sacred, do not cast your pearls to the pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus speaks those words in Matthew, and it's the example that he gives us here. Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Let's keep reading verses 14 through 21. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread. Except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember... When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. He said to them, Do you still not understand? Now the reason they end up in the boat with only one loaf of bread is probably because Jesus turned and was making his way quickly away from the pharisees he was not going to stand around and be drawn into that argument that he knew was pointless and was going nowhere so they all simply jump in the boat and they leave and food is not really what's on jesus's mind here after the conversation that he has just had with the pharisees that's what he's thinking about he's thinking about the pharisees and what a corrupting influence they are on the people around them Yeast was a common Jewish metaphor for an invisible, pervasive influence. And that's exactly what yeast is in bread dough, isn't it? Um, a very small amount of yeast can affect a very large amount of bread dough. You know, one of the biggest messes I ever made in my kitchen was when I put three times the amount of yeast in, your, in my bread machine. I put a tablespoon instead of a teaspoon. Have y'all ever done that? Um, when i came home that day thinking i was going to have this great smelling loaf of bread i had the biggest horrible mess you've ever seen it had come out of the bread machine and over the side and down the counter and then because the bread machine was on account on a timer the bottom part of it had baked and burned and anyway it was it was terrible it was terrible it had a life of its own that was out of control Because of that pervasive influence of the the yeast. And that's what Jesus is really trying to warn them about here. It's the pervasive influence of unbelief from the Pharisees has the opportunity to spread through a large amount of people and corrupt everything around it, including the truth of who he is and his mission in the world. But unfortunately, as we see here, the disciples totally miss the point of his warning. And they get all freaked out about the bread. All freaked out about the bread. Jesus, um, once again, is patient. He ends their discussion about the bread. He knows what they're talking about. He says, whoa, guys, stop right here. This isn't about the bread. And he confronts. But he knows to be their blindness with five great questions here in the text. Pretty revealing questions. And the reason he rebukes them here is not because they just don't get his warning about the Pharisees or they're not listening or they're all distracted. And he rebukes them here because of their blindness. Because they're still not putting two and two together and coming up with who he really is. Um, These are great questions, ladies, from the mouth of Jesus. I think they have some value in our life as well. Because oftentimes, I don't put two and two together either. And come up with the right, true answer that God would have me come up with. So, as Jesus asks these questions to the disciples. To prod them and lead them in the direction of truth. I think we can use them in our lives too. To answer questions And lead ourselves to the truth also. These are the things that we can ask ourselves when we're in hard or difficult circumstances. We can always ask ourselves, what is it I don't see or understand? That's what he's saying to the disciples. You don't understand. We can say to ourselves, Is my heart hardened? Because there are many times that we don't even realize it, that we have hardened our heart to the truth. We can ask ourselves, What is it that my eyes have failed to see or my ears have failed to hear? We can ask ourselves, what is it I need to remember about my Lord and my Savior? In verse 19 and 20, he asked them how much was left over when he fed the multitudes. And that translates in our lives to the great question, how has God abundantly met my needs in the past? Because he has over and over again. And his final question in verse 21 is, do you still not understand? And what he really wants them to do here, he's not talking in a disgusted, you people are idiots kind of tone. What he's saying to them is, stop and think, guys. Stop and think. You've seen it. You've done it yourself. You've been with me. He's prodding them with his questions towards that aha moment that he knows is coming. That's actually the goal he's been working towards since he met all of them and said, come follow me. He's been moving them towards a true understanding of who he is and why he's there. Read verses 22 through 26 with me. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village where he had When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. And once more, Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes. And then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't go into the village. This miracle happens when Jesus once again gets in the boat. He crosses the lake and now he's on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. And when he gets out of the boat, he's met once again by this group of people and they bring this blind man to him and beg him to heal him. And Jesus' response is the one I always love. He's just simple and direct and he immediately takes the man by the hand and leads him away from the crowd and outside the village. And this is a great picture to us of two things. It's a picture of the personal relationship. We've seen it before in the scriptures. We saw it back in chapter 5 when he stopped the woman that had touched his cloak and had been healed. Um, and he wanted to see her and wanted to get to know her. This is a great picture of that personal relationship. You know, certainly Jesus could have healed this blind man anyway. He could have just gotten out of the boat and seen the guy and said, oh yeah. Go on, I want you to have sight. He didn't have to touch him. He didn't have to talk to him. He certainly didn't have to have that one-on-one moment with him. But Jesus made it personal. He made it personal. The second thing we see here is the faith of the blind man, the faith of the blind man. Now, this is a man that's never seen Jesus' fa- face. He has not personally witnessed the miracles himself. He hasn't seen Jesus with his eyes do this for other people. But at his touch, at Jesus' touch, Jesus, the blind man, puts his faith. In Jesus, And he follows him. Now this man wasn't mentally challenged in any way that we know of. So he could have objected to going with Jesus. He could have thought, whoa, buddy, where are you taking me? We could just stay right here and get this done without taking a walk together. Can you imagine the trust? Can you imagine the trust it takes for a blind person to simply go with someone they've never met and leave their friends and go outside of the village? You know what I think happened? I think that when he heard the sound of Jesus' voice, that it filled him with such confidence and such um, a sense of peace that he couldn't resist going with Jesus. He couldn't have stopped himself. He probably would have followed him anywhere once he felt that touch and heard his voice. Now, the English translation here makes it look kind of awkward, like Jesus simply spit in the man's face. And the Greek text, that's not really um, how it plays out. Uh, It probably, Jesus applied a small amount of spit to his fingers and placed it on the man's eyes. And then he puts his hands on his shoulders and he says, Do you see anything? And the man answers that he sees people, but they kind of look like trees walking around. And then Jesus does it again. He puts his hands on the man's eyes and his sight is perfectly restored now this is actually the only miracle in mark that's not instantaneous that happens in a couple of different steps uh, jesus heals this man in stages and we don't know why he did it that way like i said before he could have done it any way he wanted to he's god he gets to do it however he wants to one of the interpretations i read said that was the reason he did it that way just because he could and it worked um And that's true. But I think there was a great reason to do it the way he did because it's such a perfect illustration of the spiritual struggle that the disciples were having. The disciples do have some understanding of the words and works of Jesus now. But think of the understanding they're going to have of the words and works of Jesus after the resurrection. Peter... The Peter that we see now in the Gospels is not the same Peter that we see after the resurrection in the book of Acts. Their spiritual sight has been restored in stages. I want you to stop and think for a minute because this was an interesting part of the passage to me about what would have happened to the blind man If he had turned and walked away from Jesus after that first touch, when he could see that there were people, but they kind of looked like trees, what if he had decided to leave then? What if he had just thought, okay, this is good, you're good, and I'm going to run off? He would have been much more functional in life, but he still would have had some issues, wouldn't he? He probably couldn't have read things on a printed page. He probably still would have stumbled and tripped over things. But because he stayed with Jesus, he remained with him, and his sight became crystal crystal clear. This is a great image to me of our spiritual journeys. Our journey from darkness to light, from being healed from blindness over spiritual things in our life, only comes through faith and through our continued intimacy with Jesus. We can't leave Jesus after His first touch in our lives and expect to see things clearly after that. We have to stay with him just like the blind man did. We need continued intimacy with Jesus all of our lives in order to see clearly. Read verses 27 through 30 with me. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked them, who do people say I am And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Last week when Lynn taught in uh, Mark chapter 7, we ended chapter 7 when Jesus healed The deaf and dumb man. And after that miracle the people confessed Jesus' greatness. But they didn't identify him as God after they did that miracle. Uh, Despite, after he did that miracle, despite what he had done. Look on your verse sheet. This is what they said after he healed the man uh, that was deaf and dumb. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear And the mute speak. But as Jesus walks along here in Mark 8 with the disciples after healing the blind man, he presses the point with the disciples. And he asks the question, who do people say that I am? And they give him the same answer that we saw back in chapter 6 when it was people said, you're either John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. And, of course, all three of those responses on behalf of the people are wrong. He is none of those things. The people are still not understanding his, who he is and what his mission is. So Jesus moves on to the real question that is on his mind here. The question that he's been leading up to with the disciples. And he looks at all of them. He looks them all right in the face. And he says, he makes it personal. And he says, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say I am? I think that question must sink in for a moment or two. But then Peter, who's emerging as the spokesman for the group, steps up and says, You are the Christ. Now, the timing of Jesus' question and Peter's answer here is critical. You know, it really wasn't that the disciples had never thought that he was the Messiah. Um, They actually had probably thought, since they first began to follow him, that he was the Messiah. But just like we talked earlier, their understanding of the Messiah was wrong. Their concept was the traditional one of the day, a national figure for Israel, a political person who was going to march into Jerusalem and free Israel from Roman grip. And even though Mark gives Peter's confession here in very simple terms, very simple terms, this is the pivotal point, ladies, for the entire Gospel of Mark. You may want to put a star right here in your Bible because it is from this point forward, from Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, that the underlying question Has been before this. Who is this man? Is he the Messiah? From this point out. After Peter's acknowledgement. The questions change. The question is now. What kind of a Messiah is this? What is it he's really come to do? And what does it mean. To follow him. And as soon as Jesus hears. Peter's confession. Jesus takes. The fork in the road that leads him straight to the cross and to the resurrection. And that's what we see in these next few verses. Let's read verses 31 through 33. And then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days rise again, and he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the, the things of men. You know, like I just said, Peter's confession is really a, a critical turning point in Jesus' ministry and certainly here in the book of Mark. People in general were not understanding Jesus' true identity. And certainly the religious leaders were opposed to him. So it's essential that the disciples affirm their faith in who Jesus is before he begins to reveal to them the straight truth about his future. What is this Messiah here to do? And the truth about what it means to their future. He wants them to make this profession of faith before he goes on to tell them what the future holds. His mission as the Messiah Includes suffering, rejection, death, and after three days, resurrection. And the disciples are clearly not prepared for that kind of plain talk from Jesus about the mission of the Messiah. Jesus calls himself here the Son of Man, which is the biblical messianic title. If you think back to our study of Daniel, that's what we learned uh, the Messiah's title was in Daniel. Look at seven, Daniel 7 on your verse sheet. And the Son of Man is a title that completely fits Jesus' mission. It has no political implications at all. So there's no way anyone, when he uses it, can misconstrue what his job is as the Messiah. Um, In fact, Jesus uses it 81 times in the Gospels to describe himself. And the news of Jesus' suffering is so far, so far from what the disciples expected to hear from Jesus that they really weren't prepared to take it in And poor Peter, poor Peter, I feel bad for Peter here. He openly refuses to accept it. None of them can reconcile that the future that Jesus is talking about as the Messiah with what they can, what they've waited for all this time. Those two don't fit together. What Jesus is talking about here and what they've always thought it was going to mean, those two things seem to be diametrically opposed. In their mind. And the reason that Jesus calls Peter Satan here is because Jesus recognizes that Satan is the ultimate source of Peter's words. You know, Peter's words are in direct opposition to the will of God, which is for Jesus to go to the cross to die for our sins. Peter's words actually support what Satan has wanted all along, which is to stop Jesus. If you'll think back to our study of Daniel, we looked at the fact of all of the things that happened that Satan tried to do to prevent the first advent, the birth of Christ. Well he's here now and what is Satan trying to do now? To stop him from going from the cross. And that is why Jesus reacts so strongly here. It is about The expression of Satan's desire that Peter makes. Let's finish up real quickly. Verses 34 through 38. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Oh, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus not only knows what his mission in the world is as the Messiah, he knows what the mission is of those that have been called to be his disciples, who have decided to follow him. And he spells it out here for us. He spells it out for the twelve disciples. He's gathered a crowd around too so he's really telling it to a bigger crowd than just the disciples and certainly their words for us today as we read the scriptures discipleship according to jesus following him in, uh, is what we call discipleship in verse 34 it's about two things really it's about denying our own selfish ways which is pretty hard to do isn't it deny our own selfish ways that's the first thing The second thing is, after we deny our own selfless ways, we have to choose God's way. We have to choose God's will for our life because that's exactly what Jesus did. When Jesus went to the cross, he was doing it God's way and he chose to do it God's way. In Jesus' day, cross-bearing brought to mind the image of a condemned man forced to carry a portion of his cross uh, to his execution site. Um, It was a common sight in Rome, apparently, to see a man carrying part of his cross to his execution site. Jesus' submission, as he took up his cross that day and carried it to his execution, was not about submitting to Rome. It was not about a show of public submission to the Roman authorities. But by going to the cross and carrying it, Jesus was showing his submission to God's way, to God's will. Jesus chose God's way and God's program for the nation of Israel. That is the cross that Jesus carried on the way to Golgotha. Everyone who follows Jesus is also going to have a cross to carry. The cross of choosing God's will for their life over their own plans for their life. You know, I often have heard people use this expression Take up your cross or that's your cross to bear. Um, in the context of suffering or um, the hardness of everyday life. And there is some imagery of that in there. But really I believe that um, Jesus' true message about discipleship here. Is about being 100% committed to living life God's way. To saying yes to God's will for our life. And yes to God's way in our life, because that's what He did. The cost of discipleship, as Jesus explains in these final few verses, that He wants His disciples to begin to understand, is the cost of discipleship involves a change of allegiance. Leaving the allegiance to your own life and pledging allegiance. To Jesus denying your selfish ways and choosing God's perfect will instead that is the cost of discipleship but you know what stood out to me when I studied this even more than these great words on the cost of discipleship is the price that you have to pay if following Jesus is not the path that you choose anyone that decides according to Jesus, to keep their self-focused life in this world by refusing the opportunity to pledge their allegiance to Jesus, according to verses 36, 37, and 8, are going to pay the price of losing their lives for all eternity. Now, how blind is that? How blind is that to hang on what we really can't keep and lose what we could have for all eternity, just so we can keep our own selfish ways. I think it really is only the blind that will refuse to understand who Jesus is, how to follow him, and are going to pay the price for that all of eternity. After John Newton's death, brush with death in 1748. He clearly saw both choices. He clearly saw choosing God's way over his own way. He clearly saw that if he chose his way, he would pay the price for all eternity. And because John Newton's choice was God's way, he eventually left the slave trade. He educated himself. He pastored a church. And he wrote hundreds of hymns besides Amazing Grace. But I think it is the hymn Amazing Grace that expresses accurately what happened in John Newton's life when he finally grasped the truth of Jesus' identity. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Pray with me, ladies. Father, I just humbly ask you for every lady in this room and on behalf of myself That we would no longer be blind to who you are in our lives. That we would have a deep and true and committed understanding that you are our Lord and our Savior. And we would choose your way and your will in our life over our own way and our own will. Father, I thank you that you've loved us enough to give us this choice. I thank you that you walk along beside us and prod us into the truth when we don't even want to see it. I thank you for your word of truth and for this chapter. And I pray that we will be women that um, choose discipleship and choose to see the truth of who you are. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, ladies. Thank you, Shelley. I just have a couple of quick reminders. Ladies, next week, March 8th, is the last week that you'll be able to bring...